Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. All right, and welcome to our show. This is going to be a show about blood. Now, when I say it's going to be a show about blood, when I put it slightly in the future tense, that's because we're having a, I'm having a week for this kind of thing. I, I was doing an event last night for which an onstage event with a live audience for which, which the guest of honor, the person on, to be on stage with me, showed up an hour late. So right now the problem isn't that somebody showed up an hour late. We're having some transatlantic transmission problems with a guest that uh, who's sort of our main guest who's going to be on from Leeds. And I will hazard the guess that when all this is over, one of the problems may have been right around the time that there are all these time changes and stuff like that. Things often get very mixed up uh, with the transatlantic bookings. But we'll see. For some reason or other, we don't have that guess. So let me just say a few things to get you ready. And so I'm going to babble a little bit, but I'll try to babble in a way that's germane. First of all, one of the things that came back to me, one of the memories that came back to me getting ready for this show was the day we call 9-11. And on 9-11, I was a journalist. I was with a slightly different kind of radio station than, I'm, than what I'm with right now. And as always, I was a newspaper columnist, and I already knew <laughs> that I was going to be basically working around the clock for a long period of time, that it was going to take a long time before I had much freedom. Um, and I wanted to do one human thing before I became a journalist. I wanted to do one thing that kind of acknowledged who I was as a human being uh, and, and that, uh, that I felt an incredible loss of other human beings. And so I thought I would give blood. And I'm, you know, an occasional blood donor. I wouldn't say I should be a regular blood donor, but I'm only an occasional blood donor. Uh, and so I thought, well, that's something that I can do right now. It's a concrete thing that I can do now, uh, and it'll mean something. And I'll do that, and then I'll go to my post as a journalist, and I'll, I'll, do, I'll work for days on end, which is kind of what did happen. But when I got to the place to give donated blood, I went to the headquarters of the American Red Cross in Farmington. When I got there, it was mobbed. It was completely mobbed. Uh, everybody had essentially had the same idea. They wanted to do something, and this is the thing that they could think of to do. Uh, so it took an enormous amount of time to give blood. Usually, of course, if you want to give blood, I mean, they are s s the Red Cross is so much in need uh, of transfusable blood that you know you can kind of pick your spots and you'll be welcomed with open arms and they're happy to see you and uh, there were there are nowhere near enough blood donors but on this particular day on 9/11 yes it was mobbed it took hours and hours and hours to give blood uh, I stuck around to do it um, and uh, it did strike me at the time that people were giving the only thing they could think of to give uh, in the teeth of this terrible tragedy but also their most precious thing to give, right? I mean, there's a lot, as we're going to talk about today, there's a lot in our mythos, a lot of uh, imagery uh, that's part of our, uh, our, our world consciousness that has to do with 
people trying to get your blood, people trying to suck your blood. There's the expression, what do you want? Blood. Uh, there's that notion that would be the, the last thing we would want to surrender. But it's also the first thing we want to surrender at a time like 9-11, which is an interesting thing. However, there's an odd little punctuation point to it, and it can now be provided by our guest because, in fact, Rose George has joined us by phone. Uh, she's the author of Nine Pints, A Journey Through the medicine, Money, Medicine, and Mysteries uh, of Blood. Uh, every time Rose George writes a book, we do a show. That's just sort of the way it works. This is the third one. Um, so, Rose George, welcome back to our show. Hello. So, I'm going to let you kind of provide the, kind of the somewhat sad or, or slightly depressing punchline. So, uh, on 9-11, yes, one of the things that happened were, was that thousands and thousands and thousands of Americans rushed to Red Cross facilities to donate their blood. Now, one thing that was the case was that the blood wasn't really needed. There weren't those kinds of survivors. In other words, people tended to die at 9-11 or, or walk away. There wasn't a lot of in-between. Um, the other part of this, though, is, as you know better than most people, blood has a shelf life. So it wasn't as though all these thousands and thousands and thousands of pints of blood could be held indefinitely to benefit other people uh, suffering from other tragedies or medical needs. What, what do you know? What do we know about the shelf life of blood? Well, it's, um, I mean, blood is perishable. So it's, it's perishable in different places for different amounts of time. So within the body, yeah, your red blood cells last about, I think it's just over 140 days. And then um, they will uh, die, and, and, but all the time you're making new ones. But outside the body, so on the shelf of a blood bank or whatever, or a hospital, um, it's uh, around, it depends on the country, but it depends, it's about 37 to 42 days, 45 days, I think, in Japan. Um, and after that, uh, blood is no good. So, um, yeah, it's got a short shelf life. It's, you know... Uh, lasts uh, not uh, not as long as cheese, but uh, longer than milk. Um, it's a perishable, it's a perishable substance. Of course, it is. It's a biological substance. Um, I I have this belief that if your book had not been titled Nine Pints, it might have been titled Amiable Juice, uh, which is what Goethe referred to. How Goethe referred to uh, blood, um, and and it re not only is it amiable juice, but I mean when you catalog Rose the number of functions that blood has, it's kind of impossible to think what else there is for the body to do. I mean, just sort of give us a sense of the things that blood actually does. Well, it, it, uh, the first thing it does is it's our fuel, so it's our energy supply. It's our nuclear reactor. It takes oxygen around the body to the organs and tissues that need it. So your blood is why you can run up a hill if you choose to do such a thing. I do. Um, it's, uh, it keeps us warm. It regulates our temperature. That's why you can, you know, if you have an accident, you will start to get very cold because your blood moves to areas of the body that needs it and moves away from your extremities. Um, it is our waste disposal. So it uh, removes uh, things we don't need. It's also our army. <laughs> it's our defense force. So the white, when we think of blood, we think of red blood, obviously it's so vivid and beautiful but um our white blood cells are amazing and uh they are constantly fighting invaders because we're constantly being assaulted by viruses and and bacteria and uh things that want to cause harm within our body and our white blood cells are constantly fighting them off and doing it really well i mean i've just had a cold and a chest infection for the last two weeks and i 
um, I knew what was happening and I knew that I was feeling really rough because my body was working as it was supposed to and it was my white blood cells that were fighting the virus, whichever virus I had. And the, all the symptoms I had, just feeling genuinely rotten, that was, um, that was the sign that it was all working as it should. So it was quite comforting even when I felt absolutely dreadful. Our blood cells are also incredibly well-traveled, uh, Rose George uh, writes in her book. Uh, your blood cells, uh, your blood cells, 30 trillion blood cells, red cells, do the full circuit of the body traveling about 12,000 miles um, every single day, three times the distance from your front door to someplace I can't uh, pronounce. Uh, but that's that's sort <laughs> no, of a, that's, yeah, that's an amazing thing. That I mean, just that notion that they go that far. Well, so there's, uh, as is typical with the Rose George book, the, the, this book also is very well traveled. It travels all over the world. Rose goes a lot of different places. There's no way we're going to be able to tell you about all of them today. But let's let's start with leeches. Um, I think people maybe have this kind of dim idea uh, right now that leeches were a form of medicine in the past and that some kind of modern use of leeches has recently returned. But that might be as much as people know. I, I maybe, just, maybe you should just start with uh, Carl, who's one of the more colorful characters in the book. Tell us about Carl and his leeches. Carl, the leech growth technician. Yes. I'm very fond of Carl. Um, so Carl works for um, a, a place in Wales, which is the UK's only leech production facility. And he essentially spends his days and years, because he's been there about 20 years, I think, uh, breeding leeches. Um, he breeds two types of leeches. He breeds the European medicinal leech, and he breeds the what's called the Asian buffalo leech, which is also medicinal, but it's used for... Um, animals because it's not quite so fussy about it when it encounters hairy skin so it's pretty good for cattle and horses and dogs and cats um, but yeah I think I think I I'm, I'm pretty sure that I had that view of leeches that you described so well which is a pretty um, vague idea that they were used for a long time and a lot I mean I don't know if you I think you get blackadder over there in the yeah. US and um, there's a very famous scene in uh, the second series, when Blackadder falls in love with his secretly female servant and goes to the medicine man, and the medicine man, um, the joke is that the cure for everything is leeches, and it's it's not far from the truth because leeches were and bloodletting in general was so popular up until the 19th century, really, that um, the native populations of leeches uh, all over Europe were they were pushed to extinction and um but now that now they can be bred as as in carl's uh, workplace in southern wales and they have been rehabilitated as really useful medical devices because they are very very useful if you are trying to attach tiny blood vessels for example if you've lost if your finger has been torn off or your scalp has been attacked by a bear for example um, it's really, really difficult to reconnect all the tiny, tiny blood vessels to get the blood flowing. So the blood might congest. And what you want then really is a leech because they have the best anticoagulant that science knows. And so they will get the blood flowing. And um, quite amazingly, they will, even when the leech has dropped off and fed, it will, the blood will keep flowing for about 10 hours. So they're, they're, pretty, they're, they're a bit of a bargain, actually. So there's this a very interesting story in the book. Uh, it takes place in 1985. There's an American boy. His uh, ear is uh, 
pretty much bitten off by the family dog. Uh, and it's treated the way that this is, uh, it can be treated, and it's essentially reattached. But there's a problem. Blood is getting pumped uh, into part of the ear, I guess, without a, a sufficient release valve, right? There, there's right. there's too much blood going into one spot. Uh, the ear begins, that area begins to get discolored. It eventually turns black. And there's a doctor who knows something about this whole leech idea, and he's wondering if that would be helpful. And the first thing we find out, Rose, is that uh, looking around America for some good old uh, leech to be helpful in this situation is a fruitless quest. As your friend Carl would say, American leeches are rubbish. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, for some reason, the, the, the species in, in the U.S. Are, are no good as medicinal leeches. For some reason, and you'd have to speak to Carl, because I'm sure he knows this more than I do, the European medicinal leeches is the most efficient and the, its anticoagulant is the most apt for, for example, that little boy, Guy Condelli, who was facing the loss of an ear because the blood was not flowing, it was congealing, and that was why it was going black. So the surgeon, Joseph Upton, I think, I mean, I, I think he'd just read a paper sort of quite randomly and it just came into his brain. He remembered that he'd, he'd read this paper um, by a couple of Slovenian surgeons who had uh, started using leeches again in the 1950s and found some success with them, but it hadn't really spread. And this was, um, you know, 30 years later. And Upton looked around America, couldn't find any suitable leeches, um, read about Biofarm, this Welsh company that had been set up by an American transplanted to Wales um, and had the leeches flown over. And I think it was that it was on that case that the uh, the pilot carried them in a box behind his seat in the in the, in yes, the cabin, which right. you think would make for quite a nerve wracking flight. So uh, leeches, leeches, just uh, for people who keep track of these kinds of things, have 10 stomachs, 32 brains, nine pairs of testicles, and several hundred teeth. So uh, I think when we hear that several hundred teeth thing, we think, oh, no, no thanks, no leeches for me. But it doesn't really hurt that much, right? I mean, what does it feel like when a leech, you know, sinks those hundreds of teeth into you? Apparently, it's no, it's not particularly painful. I mean, I, I'm afraid, well... Obviously, I didn't want to be bitten by a leech. So although I have held a leech, um, I, I, I made sure to hold it for fewer than 15 <laughs> seconds. So, so the chances of it biting me were, that's what, it's 12 to 15 seconds that if the leech likes you, the leech may not like you and mm. may not like your smell and um, may drop off. But uh, yeah, so um, I've, from what I've read, it's, it's you know, when, it, when you go and give blood or if, mm -hmm. if you, you have blood taken, and then uh, over here in the UK, I don't know, the nurse will always say, oh, sharp scratch. Right. And, it, and you think, well, it's, it's not a scratch. But anyway, <laughs> but um, it, I think it feels a bit like that. It's just a kind of short, sharp sensation. Well, they, they, they have their own little bit of an anesthetic, right? Uh, I think so. Yes, yeah. I think they do. So I think, I, I think, I mean, you know, they're efficient parasites and an efficient parasite does not want to, does not want to be thrown off its feeding ground. So they're going to be as subtle about it as possible. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it seems like a very obliging animal. It's no wonder that they were so popular. Uh, you, you, maybe we should mention, we, we sort of uh, alluded to the history, but really that whole idea of bloodletting and particularly bloodletting through leeches really was used to cure just about uh, everything. Uh, there's, a, there's a Lord Byron story that goes with this, right? 
Right. So, yeah, um, bloodletting was seen as the cure for everything, including severe blood loss. Mm. Um, so if anything was wrong with you, your vein would be opened with a scalpel or you would have leeches applied. Um, so, yeah, Byron was dying and um, he rallied, I think, on his last day or so. And the doctor being a typical Victorian era doctor uh, prescribed leeches. And Byron was absolutely furious and obviously had his wits about him enough to say, you damn butchers. <laughs> but he took the leeches and uh, died the next day. So he wasn't exactly a testament for successful leech therapy. No. So one of the things that your book, and as I say, I mean, you've got to get this book. And I was just at a concert and some, holding this book and somebody came up to me and said, I just started that book. Uh, you've got to get Nine Pints, A Journey Through the Money, Medicine and Mysteries of Blood by Rose George and see all the places that it goes. But I feel like we would be remiss if we did not talk uh, about menstruation. Uh, and it's in some ways the, the chapter where, or one of the chapters where I can feel you getting kind of angry at times as a writer. Um, I mean, uh, attitudes about menstruation, myths about menstruation have been uh, around essentially forever, for as long as there's been the potential to record those attitudes and myths. It goes back as far as Pliny and, and Leviticus, right? Right. Although very, very early on, so some old societies actually thought the menstruating woman had magical powers and it was seen as quite positive. It was kind of, you know, good witchness or something that, that because, you know, if you think about it through history, for most of history, uh, until we got a little bit more scientific and rational, the only time that people saw blood, they associated it with injury or death. Mm -hmm. So if someone was, if you saw blood coming out of someone's body, obviously, generally that person would either be in a very sorry state or dead. Whereas then there were these creatures women who were bleeding and uh, not dying. So um, initially it was seen as a quite miraculous thing and they had these wonderful powers and that's when you got all the, you know, associated with the moon and that kind of thing. But then quickly it changed and suddenly these powers became really pernicious and dangerous. And Pliny, um, who is uh, known as a naturalist and probably got some stuff right in his massive natural, natural histories, but he has these descriptions of what a menstruating woman can do, and it's really quite extraordinary. So he, he describes her as walking through a field of corn, and all the ears of corn drop off, and all the leaves drop off the trees, and all the weeds shrivel up and die, which, frankly, would be great. I wish I could do that. Um, but, you know, less comically throughout history, there have been these this idea of the menstruating woman as polluting and dirty, which persists to this day, and it, it, it is that that makes me angry. It makes me angry that young girls in many countries around the world are told that they can't do things just because they have their periods. They can't worship at temples or they can't uh, help in the kitchen, which they may not want to do, but they're, they're forbidden from the kitchen, and they are told things like their nail polish will rot and that they can make pickles go bad and these sound kind of silly but they have real damaging effects and and one of the things is that throughout her childhood and teenagehood these this young girl is being told that she is a dirty polluting thing and i think that's absurd and wrong 
Well, I mean, it goes even further than that in, in lots of different ways. But I mean, yes, in some of these uh, other countries, uh, girls are not allowed to sleep uh, in the house while they're doing this. And you have a description of, a, of I think, a 14-year-old girl who's basically sleeping on kind of a pile of almost garbage or something under mosquito netting, right? Yeah, that was in, so that's Western Nepal where I went to, um, and it's uh, the lowlands of Western Nepal, and it's um, something called chow paddy, um, and it's a belief that women are so polluting when they are having their period that they are banished from their own homes. They're not allowed to sleep in the house. They're not allowed, in, they're certainly not allowed in the kitchen. Um, the young girl over the road from me where I was staying was not allowed to set foot in the house where I was staying and or in her own in her own house and her she was fed by her sister pouring her some rice i think on a plate from a height so a safe height uh, because she was so dangerous and so dirty and so filthy and it's it's just i i i find it really hard to um accept that and i i, I when you say that i sounded angry in those chapters i am i'm angry for girls like rada who who are not going to escape that, and um, but I think uh, I think taboos have many faces, and and that chapati is a really extreme version of it. But in even in the industrialized world where we think we are very advanced and we have feminine hygiene products, I mean, just think of that phrase, feminine hygiene. Mm-hmm. Why do we need the word hygiene? Why are we being told that we're dirty? And I, and although we may have safe, private toilets in which to go and change and stuff. But we're also being give, told the same message that we need to be fragrant and discreet and not bother anyone with the fact that we have our period. And I don't think, I think it's just, a, I think taboo, the taboo is universal. We, we saw it just jump out in our last presidential campaign where uh, Donald Trump and then a candidate wanted to complain about this particular woman journalist, Megyn Kelly, and he said she had blood coming out of her ears and her eyes and her wherever uh, uh, or whatever. Uh, and it was pretty clear what he was talking about, but it almost sounded like something out of Pliny, too, that here was this woman who was, you know, extruding blood in a way that he found uh, frightening. Uh, and, and it was his way of making her sound like this almost magical being who was attacking him. Yeah, I mean, you see it in so much public discourse about women who are, you know, too angry because they're they're on their period or they're hormonal or they're... It's, it's all this, us being reduced to our menstrual cycles and it's just... I think we're beyond that. We should be beyond that by now. Well, you know, you, you say that in other parts of the world there are women who can't do certain jobs. But f- for a time, there's been an, uh, an attitude in America that has affected, for example, park rangers, that women who are menstruating attract bears, which sounds just like crazy talk. But it, it's a kind of crazy talk that it got some something of a foothold for a while, right? It did. So in the 1970s, there were two really horrific um, attacks um, on young women by bears in Glacier Lake National Park. And they were both absolutely horrific. Um, nobody was at fault. Um, and But a report was issued that uh, posited that the fact that one of the young women was on her period and the other one had a, I think, a sanitary pad or a tampon in her backpack, so obviously was expecting to be on her period. And obviously that had lured the bears towards them. 
and that was, you know, they, they were kind of at fault for having periods. So women were banned, or a staff were were not allowed into the back country um, if they were menstruating, and it was at, you know, the the park issued publicly printed brochures saying women should not go into bear country when they have their period. Um, and that persisted for a very long time, up into the 1990s. And you can still find, I think online, I think there's a shark association, which uh, also says that you shouldn't go diving near sharks if you have your period. But there's been scientific research that has certainly with bears, where they have very valiant scientists have done things like tied used tampons to fishing lines and flung them in the direction of bear polar bears. And it's very inconclusive. The polar bears weren't interested at all. And <laughs> so, yeah, it's it's strange how these assumptions take hold and persist into the modern day. All right, we're going to take a break. I, I would encourage you, we don't have time for it right now, but I would encourage you uh, when you get your hands on Rose's book to read about the Wogeo Islands, uh, Islanders of Papua, Papua New Guinea, uh, where the men uh, have to go through a cleansing ritual would be to kind of uh, kind of understate it uh, if they come into contact with this uh, frightening stuff. But it's it makes you happy you're not a Wogeo man anyway, what he has to do. Uh, anyway, we'll take a little break. We'll come back. We're going to talk about the whole notion of uh, consuming blood, drinking blood, the world of vampires, and maybe the world of blood drinking that preceded vampires. Only women bleed. Only women bleed. All right. Uh, we're still talking to Rose George. Her, her book is Nine Pints, A Journey Through the Money, Medicine, and Mysteries of Blood. Um, in just a second, we're also going to talk uh, to uh, someone who's part of the community uh, of so-called real-life vampires, uh, Michel Belanger. Uh, but before we do that, Rose, I think it's sort of important to note, as you do in your book, that this notion uh, that consuming blood, I mean, so we've got leeches who will take your blood away, but there's also been a, a thousands-year-old notion that maybe consuming blood would be a, a pretty good idea. There are even accounts uh, of what gladiator games in Rome where people uh, ran out to try to get some of the blood of the, the slain warrior? Yes, exactly. And um, But not just in Rome. I mean, um, I, I mean, again, if we think back to how people perceive blood, and blood was seen as such a powerful thing because if you lost it, you died. Um, obviously, the logic was that if you... If, if that happened when you lost it, then if you could get some into you from somewhere else, then that might give you strength or life. So that was behind that thinking. But then for a long time throughout history, um, blood drinking was seen as the cure for epilepsy, uh, which was not was very poorly understood and a very frightening condition. Mm -hmm. um, and so you have accounts throughout history of uh, epileptics going to public executions and bringing their cups and beakers uh, or soaking blood with white handkerchiefs and um, it wasn't just epileptics for some reason other people thought that going to executions and in one case bringing saucepans was a good idea but um, I mean I, I understand the rationale of it but actually I'm sure your next guest will have an insight into this but I did ask a senior hematologist what actually happens if you drink a pint of blood mm -hmm. 
and he said, you, uh, "Not much, really, because you would um, your body would get rid of the excess iron. So it would it would if it was lacking in iron, it might absorb some iron. But because you're drinking it, it's going into your stomach, not going to be absorbed anyway, because the hemoglobin is is inside your red blood cells." Um, and he said, you just get rid of it. So you might get, if you were dehydrated, it might be useful because you could get the liquid of blood, the plasma. But otherwise, um, I'm not quite sure what the benefits of drinking blood would be. Uh, somebody should have told that to Pope Innocent VIII, right? Uh. Yeah, I, I mean, that that is a, a well-known tale that he drank the blood of three. It's either young boys or young men, depending on the tale you read. But um, it, it could be that that was people who were not fond of the Pope writing. Right. I mean, there various. Time. It could be just another version of the blood libel, which was directed at Jews yeah. too. That that they were literally after your blood. Uh, one of the ways of stirring up prejudice and and hatred and mistrust uh, of Jews for for centuries. Um, mm-hmm. So there are these tales. Um, all right. So, uh, but there are people these days who choose to live as uh, vampires. Uh, Michelle Boulanger uh, is jo- joining us now. I hope I'm saying that name right. A writer, poet, occult expert, and author of several books, including the Psychic Vampire Codex, a manual uh, of magic and energy work. Uh, she identifies as a psychic vampire, but she spent uh, quite a bit of time talking to uh, all kinds of uh, or other kinds of real life vampires. So, Michelle, welcome to our conversation. Hello, thank you for having me. And I hope I'm saying your last name reasonably well. Yes, you have nailed it. It's uh, it's Acadian French, so okay. thank you. Um, so when we say the real-life vampires, I think a lot of people feel as though that's kind of a contradiction in terms. Uh, <laughs> vampires don't live in real life. They live someplace else. So what does that term mean? Uh, vampires are an identity group, uh, a fairly uh, diverse one, of people who, for one reason or another, have adopted the term vampire for themselves, some of whom feel that they are inherently vampiric. So there's a portion of the community who are blood drinkers, and it is a, a thing that they feel they get something out of, uh, although we're ta- not talking pints. It's usually like maybe a tablespoon at most. Uh, there are folks like myself who are psychic vampires, for whom the word vampire is just the best word in the English language for the relationship we have with life energy. And then there's uh, a much larger portion of the community uh, of people who I would relate to folks who are really into country Western music, who really, like, no matter where they live, adopt the philosophy and the dress and the aesthetic uh, and then the sort of like romanticized notion of an archetypal figure. And instead of the cowboy for the vampire community, it's the vampire. So for some of these subgroups, there's this notion of energy. You know, Rose was just saying medically it's kind of hard to figure out what you would get if you drank somebody else's blood. Uh, But maybe this isn't so much a conventional medical idea. There's this idea of, of life energy. Can you tell me more about that? Well, there are certainly blood, drink, blood drinkers who identify as medical sangs who will insist that there is a medical reason that they drink the blood. But the vast majority of folks in the community see the blood more as uh, a symbolic exchange of, of life force, of essence. Uh, some cite biblical sources, Leviticus, the blood is the life, uh, you know, that old sawhorse uh, quoted by Dracula. Uh, and, and it's impossible to extricate influences of pop culture and fiction uh, with the vampire community in terms of the, the figure that they, they romanticize. But the basic idea, uh, which we have uh, cognates in many other cultures, is there is 
a life essence that humans have and interact with. In other cultures, you may call it chi or ki or prana. Uh, We don't have a good cognate for that in English, uh, but many of the folks in the vampire community feel that they have a particular relationship, sensitivity and awareness, uh, as well as an ability to harness and channel that. Uh, On an amusing side, it's not that much different from people who practice Reiki um, or other sort of energy healing techniques except uh, the folks who identify as vampires are very aware that they take it in addition to being able to, uh, to harness and give it for healing. So, you know, the way that we're talking about it now, it sounds like it might be some kind of combination uh, of a certain kind of new age practitioner and maybe some people who have HBO uh, subscriptions, too. But this isn't something that just sort of popped up recently, um, as you recount uh, at the peak of the Victorian occult revival, 1880s, 1890s. I mean, Bram Stoker, he didn't just pull this out of nowhere, right? There were people doing this kind of thing? Yeah, the the word psychic vampire uh, first shows up in print probably in the 1800s, certainly among the the Flying Scrolls, which were uh, a fancy name for uh, basically uh, a pen-pound network of instructional texts for the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. Uh, There was this grand occult revival in Victorian England. Stoker uh, and his circle were were a part of it. It involved a lot of the literati of the day, a lot of the uh, actors of the day. Uh, Oscar Wilde's wife was someone who ascended through the ranks fairly quickly, and we we can trace through her connections to Stoker and these ideas that there were living people who earned the term vampire through their mesmeric ability to, to harness and even dominate the energy of others. So, so do we do we know for a fact that those people back in those days were drinking blood, or might it also have been a more uh, psychic or, or metaphoric thing they were doing? For the folks in the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, what they're talking about almost exclusively is psychic vampirism, which is purely energy. Now, there are accounts of blood drinking prior to that. Uh, there's a fairly obscure article about a blood drinking cult in. Iowa, I want to say, from about the 1870s or so. But even dialing back even further than that, Marsilio Ficino, uh, who was working around the time of the Medicis in the 15th century, has a book called The Book of Life. Um, and this might actually lend a little credence to the accusation to the Pope, because in his Book of Life, it's, it's sort of a manual of how to take care of yourself and maintain your longevity and a number of other things. And there's a chapter, uh, a part of which is devoted to the technique of drinking blood from youth, young men, young women. Um, he gives a suggestion for a certain age uh, in the bloom of youth. And the idea is that you are drinking their blood to steal some of that youth to, to maintain a, a, in a medical way. Uh, and so this is a practice he was suggesting that people indulge in. So, Rose George, this will be familiar to you, and there's even a term, parabiosis. I have to say, I'm the last person alive, I'm pretty sure, who remembers this television show. But there was a television show when I was uh, a young person called The Immortal, and it was uh, started Christopher George, and he played this guy whose blood had all these really incredibly uh, unusual uh, immune qualities, uh, so much so that he did not appear ever to age. And as a result, his life was made a living hell because, you know, rapacious billionaire 
billionaires were hunting him down to try to take his blood and keep themselves uh, young forever and, and never die and all this kind of stuff. But, but, but Rose, maybe you can sort of give a sense. This apparently is not confined to idiotic TV shows that I watched when I was a boy. There is this notion of somehow are they transferring longevity via blood. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, I mean, this has been a this has a long history as well. But um, one of the more interesting episodes was um, there was a um, a guy uh, in the early Soviet um, era. So he was friends with Lenin and 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 Stalin, and um, he wrote a book called The Red Star, which was about it doesn't really matter. It's Bolshevik science fiction, but um, <laughs> anyway, it's. <laughs> genre but so this scientist goes to mars and they and they're all amazingly young looking and it turns out that they're all this is quite funny they're all shockingly over 50 but look really young and um the secret is that they're having these blood exchanges and so um bogdanov the the soviet um in real life was put in charge of an institute of blood exchanges so not transfusions well transfusions but there's definitely this idea of exchange so you'd have an older person hooked up to a younger person, um, I think connected by tubing and cutting open a vein. And the idea was that good would flow both ways. And you mentioned parabiosis. So there is scientific mirroring of this idea, which is that for many years now, for about a century or so, scientists have been stitching together various unfortunate creatures, usually rats, sometimes mice, uh, and connecting their circulations, sometimes having an old mouse and a young mouse, for example, and seeing what happens and seeing whether the young blood or whatever is, is circulating in the circulation uh, has an effect on the old mouse. And there has been some interesting research showing that it does have a rejuvenating effect. Um, and so on the back of this, you, we now have companies which are not drinking blood, mm-hmm. but um, selling the service of... Uh, you being able to get a transfusion of two liters of plasma, so not even red blood cells, but the yellow uh, liquid that separates from blood if you let it sit, um, which is full of really, really uh, lucrative and powerful stuff, like lots of proteins and things that are very useful. And they think that something within plasma does have rejuvenating properties and that you should pay for the privilege. There is absolutely no science to back this up. And... um, but there is anecdotal reports. There are anecdotal reports from people who have ch- used this service to say that they feel better and they feel younger and they feel fresher and their cheeks are flushed and they may just be more rehydrated. But um, yes, it is something you can do nowadays. And there is this. There is a lot of money going into finding the elusive protein that makes us live longer or live better and it's it's probably going to be in blood obviously but um so there is a lot of there are a lot of really uh, reputable scientists working on this as well as these companies offering a couple of pints of plasma right it's oh, something that we so, oh, sorry go ahead michelle yeah Oh, it's conjuring images of those briefly popular and then fairly infamous vampire facials where they were injecting blood in people's faces right up until everybody had to go get tested for, uh, you know, the somewhat predictable results of of blood that came through that wasn't necessarily clean. Mm. 
Um, all right. Uh, well, I, we certainly explained to the interns uh, here at the radio station that uh, in order to keep me from aging, that they will require I will require their blood from time to time. But it's all done uh, with informed consent. So, Michelle, there's you know, vampires are on the one hand incredibly culturally fashionable. I mean, they almost seem never to go out of fashion, um, and, and often regarded as kind of interestingly sexy. But there's also a tremendous amount of stigma and fear attached to vampires. So if you're, if one is a real life vampire, if one is a self declared uh, vampire, what are the consequences of that? I assume there's some kind of stigma. There's certainly stigma. I mean, oftentimes, as the media liaison for the community, I end up being the person who's like that kid who dressed in black and was posting to vampire freaks was, in fact, not shooting up his school expressly because he was a vampire. Um, we, we were coming together as a community on the tail end of the satanic panic. Uh, and so the, the, all the trappings that go along with the image of the vampire uh, were incredibly stigmatizing. So, of course, the question is, is why would anybody in the right mind want to adopt this term vampire for themselves, uh, e- even just as a modified identity? And I would imagine that people were asking the same question of witches in the 50s and 60s, where the bulk of folklore and things like Malleus Maleficarum uh, painted a a widespread image and understanding of the sabbatic witch who was off sacrificing babies and dancing with uh, the black goat in the woods. And yet modern witches have reclaimed the term, have essentially redefined the term. Uh, in, in a way that we understand that there's a difference between the folklore and the fiction, that there were there were small elements uh, that were very much cherry-picked by the community. And the, the same goes for the vampire community. Uh, and in that respect, we absolutely have to look at it as a new religious movement. Um, while the vampires themselves, speaking as someone who steps who works both in the community and is a religious studies scholar. Uh, The vampires themselves are going to hoot and holler and really object to being called people who are practicing religion. Uh, It's unavoidable that there is belief involved in this identity. Um, we're going to have to stop uh, our vampire conversation uh, right there with Michel Belanger, a uh, writer, poet, a cult expert, and author of many books, including the Psychic Vampire Codex, a Manual of Magic and Energy Work. Uh, we're going to take a break. We've got one more thing to tell you about. Uh, we're going to tell you about various kinds of artificial blood, although, parentheses, there is no such thing, scientifically speaking. Today's show is produced by Phil the Leech Doctor, Betsy Bloodworth, and me, Kyone Wolf. There really is no point in changing my name in this context. Our digital guru is Carlos Sangria, and the part of Bill Curry was played by Tom Cruise. On tomorrow's show, the nose goes to see Melissa McCarthy in a serious role. And now, back to Colin. All right. Uh, we want to talk uh, here at the end about artificial blood and about fake blood, uh, both of those things. Uh, let's get started with fake blood, and then we'll circle back to Rose George for a conversation about uh, artificial blood, still kind of a scientific or biomedical holy grail, something that uh, you can't seem to get to, even though grails uh, ordinarily, holy grails often have blood in them. Uh, however, uh, we go to the movies, and Forrest uh, Wickman is here with us, uh, culture editor at Slate. Um, we go to the movies, and we 
we talk about blood and guts or blood and gore or whatever. We're really talking about blood most of the time. Most of the time when we're talking about that kind of movie, the main thing, you're not going to see a lot of spleens and livers. You're going to see blood. Uh, that means that there has to be something pretending to be blood. So Forrest Wickman uh, looked into uh, the history of what that stuff was. Uh, welcome to our conversation, first of all. Thanks for having me. Um, so uh, one of the things that I hadn't really thought too much about is that back in the days of black and white movies before Technicolor, uh, it kind of didn't make much difference what color the blood was as long as it was uh, dark or darkish. So so what did that mean? What did, what did they wind up using then for fake blood? Yeah, I mean, for most of the black and white era, there wasn't a lot of blood in movies. It was um, censored mostly. Um, by the production code in the 30s and 40s and 50s. Um, but if you think of a movie like Psycho, the you know blood, quote-unquote, that you're seeing in that movie is actually just chocolate syrup. Um, and they would literally just use, like, Hershey's syrup or Bosco syrup. And as you say, because it was black and white, all that really mattered is just that it was, like, dark and viscous and flowed like blood. And for that, chocolate syrup did the, did the trick. So uh, as we get into Technicolor movies and also uh, rather violent and vivid movies, we need better uh, fake blood. Um, and the godfather uh, of fake blood, including probably the blood that was used in The Godfather, uh, is a man with a rather interchangeable sounding name of Dick Smith. So Dick Smith is the guy. He's the game changer, right? Uh, what does he do? Yeah, I mean, for most of the sort of early color era, if you go back and look at those movies, there's typically not a lot of blood, but if you look at kind of underground horror movies, you, you might see a lot of it. And it's usually just like really cartoonishly bright and looks totally fake. I mean, blood isn't really uh, crayon red. It's more kind of dark and purple. And so this guy, Dick Smith, who worked on movies like The Godfather and The Exorcist and da Taxi Driver, really perfected the recipe um, and the main base is corn syrup, which folks might have heard before. And then he has, a, you know, a particular ratio of not just red food coloring, but yellow food coloring and something called methylparaben and this stuff called Kodak Photoflow, um, although that makes it poisonous, which is not good if uh, somebody's bleeding out of the mouth, let's say. <laughs> Um, the uh, some filmmakers get really uh, finicky and fancy with blood. Not just filmmakers. I, I think the stage director, or stage the playwright, Mark, Martin McDonough, um, uh, uses has used multiple kinds of blood or, or multiple versions of fake blood on on some of his bloodier stage plays. Certainly, uh, Tarantino. We will be unsurprised to find out uh, cares a lot about what kind of blood he gets and how much. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I, I mean, these directors, they're not always just looking for realism. Um, you know, when you're talking about a movie like The Godfather Taxi Driver, maybe they're trying to make it look realistic. But when you're Quentin Tarantino and you're making Kill Bill, you, you know, that's really in many ways a movie about movies. And so you want it to look not like real blood, but you want it to look just like the blood looked in old samurai movies. And so he would specifically request um, samurai blood and often request, you know, multiple types of blood for different scenes in, in, in each of the movies. All right. Give me some uh, samurai blood and make it snappy and make, the, make, it, make there be a lot of it. Oh, too. We're almost out of time, but Rose George, I think it's sort of worth mentioning here that uh, you introduce in, in your book, Nine Pints, you uh, in, introduce us, us to a character named uh, Dr. Igawa, uh, who has uh, finally invented synthetic blood. Uh, the problem is that Dr. Igawa is fictional. The reason that uh, the synthetic blood is important is because vampires in true blood can consume 
consume the synthetic blood, so we theoretically don't have to be afraid of vampires anymore. They've got something else that they like almost as much. The reality is synthetic or artificial blood is still tantalizingly close, but also significantly out of reach, right? Yeah, it's it's very difficult to... It turns out that blood is a extremely complex and wonderful and extremely powerful substance, and <clears throat> it turns out that we don't yet know how to replicate it. So most of the successful efforts have centered on trying to reproduce what hemoglobin does, which is it. one of its essential things is that it gets oxygen to where oxygen needs to be. And um, so there have been various hemoglobin carriers that have been tried, but none of them work as well as blood. And um, so another option is that we can try and grow blood and we can grow red blood cells. And there have been a couple of really impressive um, efforts on that score. Um, and the uh, blood agency in England, NHSBT, has recently um, been pretty successful growing cells in the lab. But even if they can do that, um, it's just fantastically expensive. And it's just never going to be as... Uh, easy to get as it is to get blood out of someone's arm. So uh, until we can replicate blood, we're, that's that's where it's going to come from. It's going to come out of someone's arm. And um, we're very lucky in the UK and the US that people are still willing to give blood. It's an extraordinary thing to do. Uh, and Maybe that's, we should end by saluting all of them. Absolutely. That's where I was going to end, too, that uh, if you're listening to this right now and you are inspired by what you hear, really, it's a very easy thing to give blood. I have on multiple multiple occasions given blood on the air while doing a live radio show and not essentially had to interrupt other than to be lying down as opposed to sitting up, not uh, really had to interrupt what I was doing. It's that unobtrusive. So uh, if you've never done it before, consider uh, making a donation at the next blood drive or just make an appointment with the Red Cross. They would be glad to welcome you in. It's an important thing to do. It's a valuable. And you'll feel good afterwards, too. You always feel like you've done something. And, of course, you've given this incredibly precious thing. Uh, all right. Thanks very much to Rose George. Her book is Nine Pints, A Journey Through the Money, Medicine, and Mystery of blood. Thanks to everybody who listened. Uh, and once again, yes, do consider giving blood.